If you have a Bible, I invite you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 13 this morning. Acts chapter 13. Uh, maybe you've heard the advice, uh, when traveling, you should lay out all your clothes and all your money, then take half your clothes and twice the money. That sounds like pretty accurate advice, uh, because traveling almost always costs more than we think. As we continue in the book of Acts this morning, we've just concluded uh, what could be called the Acts of Peter in chapters 9 through 12, and now Luke turns his attention to Paul, or Saul, as we see the, the acts in the ministry of Paul. Over the next number of chapters, 13 through 21, um, Luke will cover three, uh, Paul's three missionary trips, or his three missionary journeys. Uh, the first one is where we're going to spend most of our time uh, this morning, or our time this morning, and the next couple weeks. And then we'll get into chap, chap, the second and third um, trip uh, in, in, in the future weeks. Uh, but these chapters, uh, Luke do documents uh, both the cities that Paul went to, as well as the ministry that took place, and the cost that it required. Uh, traveling, there's a cost. Traveling for, for God and what call, God's calling on our life uh, requires requires a cost. It requires sacrifice. But before Luke even gets to the actual trip, he explains how uh, Saul and Barnabas are, are called and commissioned. Actually, let's start in verse 25 of chapter 12. If uh, you were paying attention last week, we didn't actually read this verse because it connects more with chapter 13. But it says this, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service bringing with them John, whose other name is Mark. So Barnabas and Saul are returning from Jerusalem, which in chapter 11 tells us they went to help uh, with the distribution of food for a famine. So they come back to Antioch, and they bring with them uh, John, whose, uh, whose other name is, is Mark. Uh, John Mark. This is Mark, the, the writer of the second Gospel, the Gospel of Mark. This John Mark is also the cousin of Barnabas that we learn that in the book of Colossians. Uh, we find that up until now, <clears throat> Jerusalem had been the center of, of the ministry among the early church. But now it is shifting. It's shifting to Antioch here in chapter 13 and beyond. This would become the central city out of which ministry would take place. And again, up until now, it was Peter. Now things are moving towards Saul and, uh, or, or Paul. He would be the key disciple. This was uh, the great city of the church now, the, of the, the Gentile Christianity. <clears throat> Let's look at it in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who's called Niger, Lucius the Cyrene of Cyrene, Manon, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. I'll stop there. Luke, Luke lists five men here, uh, five leaders in the church that are called, uh, summarized as prophets and teachers. It's not clear who's the prophets and, and who are the teachers necessarily. Uh, but as it relates to, to prophets, let's just say this quickly, that uh, when it says prophet here, it's not talking it's exclusively about the idea of, of foretelling. 
In fact, more, more foretelling was happening than foretelling, although that was happening. We saw that in chapter 11 with Agabus, who, who foresaw uh, the need for, for food in the famine. So there, that was happening, but there's also an understanding of prophecy of, of foretelling. Um, nevertheless, the, the role of a prophecy, as in foretelling, would soon be replaced at the end of the apostolic age, right? As soon as there were no apostles, there were no uh, prophets, and they would be replaced. We look at Ephesians chapter 4, we find out that it would be replaced with evangelists and pastor teachers. So you wonder why we don't have prophets anymore. That was replaced. The, the, the apostolic age is done. The Bible has been completed. There is no need for further revelation. So therefore, we don't need prophets. That's, a time, there's a, that's for another time. But uh, the, the five guys listed, we'd see Barnabas. Barnabas, uh, we find out he's a Levite. Uh, Simeon here is called uh, Niger, who presumably is a black African. Lucius of Cyrene was from North, uh, North Africa. Um, uh, Manian is a, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, some of your Bibles might say uh, something uh, different, that, that he was brought up with Herod. Uh, this Herod was the Herod of Matthew chapter 14, the Herod who uh, beheaded John the Baptist. Uh, but, but this idea of being brought up with Herod could mean that he was actually a foster brother of Herod. Uh, he, he had intimate knowledge, anyways, of, of Herod. And then he ends with Saul, uh, who was a Hebrew. Uh, so Luke lists five different men. This is a, a, a summary. These weren't the only five men, certainly, in the church. But he lists these five men, and it's symbolic of this diversity, both ethnic and cultural diversity that's happening at the church of Antioch. So it wasn't just one group getting together and, and claiming all these things. There was, there was a diversity in the church, which uh, pictures well the kingdom of God. Let's get back to verse 2. While they, that's talking about the church, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. Here we see that the Holy Spirit revealed the will of God to the church as they worshiped and fasted. That's how God worked through the church. He, he called them to set apart for a, a specific ministry. This setting apart was, was a unique calling for Barnabas and Saul. Clearly, God was calling them, but we don't see the clarity of where he was calling them. He doesn't tell them where to go. This might remind us of, of other callings in the Bible, one in particular of Abraham, when God calls him to go, and he doesn't tell him where exactly he's going to go. And yet Abraham obeys, and here we see Barnabas and Saul obeying as well. Following God requires faith. That's what we find, right? You know that in your life, too, already, don't you? That following God, you don't always have the next step. You might have one step. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. I had a professor in college give an illustration of if you were driving in the fog and you could only see maybe 100 yards in front of you and you thought, well, I can't drive any further. I can only see 100 yards in front of you. But if you've ever driven in the fog, what you know is that when you drive the 100 yards, then you can see the next 100 yards. And then you can see the next hundred yards. And sometimes God does not reveal to us hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of yards ahead of us. He reveals to us one step ahead of us. And so they were called to go and they went. 
Uh, before we move on, we, we should note that the direction of the Lord came as the people sought him in worship and fasting. And then verse 4 says, prayer and fasting. There's this connection of seeking God through prayer, through fasting. Fasting is, is often connected with prayer. Uh, fasting is a discipline of abstaining from something in order to spend more time with God. Namely, it's fasting from food, right? That's what we normally think of fasting. That is typically what fasting is. But you might say, I'm not able to fast. Maybe you're not capable of that. Maybe your, your diet or your need for, for food is, is such that you, you can't go without food. Then, then there are other ways to fast. There's fasting from other things in order that you might spend time with God. It's an act of worship. And where fasting is the abstaining, worship or prayer is, is the engaging. Right? So it's not fasting just to do nothing. It's fasting to, to give time to do what? To engage in prayer and worship. Prayer and worship are engagement. They're not passive, they're not passive acts. They're active. So if you come here and you, you, you sing or, or you, we worship together, and that's activity. That's not passivity. In your prayer life, that's not passive. That's, that's active. And we see the church involved in this. And upon, verse 4 tells us, upon fasting and praying, then they laid their hands on them. And that's a, that's a signal, that's a, a sign of this sending or commissioning of these men. And they were sent out. But then we read verse 4. Look at verse 4. It says, and so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So verse 3 tells us that they, they sent them out, the church sent them out. And then verse 4 says that the Holy Spirit sent them out. So you might say, well, which is it? Is it the church or is it the Spirit? Well, John Stott is helpful here. Let me just read this for us. He writes this, Would it not be true to say that both the Spirit sent them out by instructing the church to do so, and that the church sent them out, having been directed by the Spirit to do so? So it's both, right? It's both. Uh, John Stott actually goes on to, to explain that there are, there are two primary reasons uh, for this more balanced view of this sending. And the first is individualism. The first is that someone might get this idea like the Spirit told me to, and so I'm just going to do it. And I don't need the church's involvement. I don't, I don't need the church to sign on to this. The Spirit told me to do it, and I'm just going to go do it. Uh, the other side of it is institutionalism. The other side is the church tells you everything, and they, they don't consult the Spirit at all. And so both ends of that spectrum are guarded against when we understand that the Spirit of God works through the people of God. Right? That's how God is at work. As they are sent out, directed by the Spirit, with support of this local church, we find that Paul and Barnabas don't seem to have much of a say in this, do they? We, we don't see them saying, I want to go. Sign me up. There wasn't a sign-up sheet on the Welcome Center that Paul and Barnabas signed, and, and then he sent them out. Right? They, God moved appointed them to do it, and they did it. And they went out in obedience. And, and as they go, as they're sent out, we see this, this dawning of a new, a new day in the early church. See, up until this point, the, the moving out of Christians had been forced. It had been required. Uh, persecution had pressured Christians, and they, they left. They scattered. And they scattered with the gospel, and so the gospel spread. But here we're seeing this intentionality of missions, we're seeing this, this vision of saying, we're going to send these guys out, and they're going to go into other places, and they're going to spread the gospel into these other regions. There was this great intention of seeing God's heart for global missions. Understanding Acts 1.8, 
Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And here we see the church actually starting to do that. They're, they're getting on board with God's vision. For us here currently, currently this is uh, what our, our mission's uh, map looks like. We support over two dozen missionaries all around the world. We, we go from, from as far uh, west as Vegas all the way over to Papua New Guinea. Right? We're, we, there's, there's a pretty broad spectrum. Lord willing, someday soon we, we'll have some missionaries in Norway as soon as they get their support. Uh, but we want to be about what God's mission is, and that's making more and better disciples all around the world, both here and abroad, for the glory of God. And, and though, though Barnabas and Saul uh, were, were set aside very particularly, so we understand that this is a narrative, it's historical, this is, these two guys were set apart. You aren't Barnabas, I'm not Barnabas, you're not Saul, I'm not Saul. So we don't want to make it a one-for-one one here, but what we can know is what Jesus says in John chapter 20, verse 21, that even as, as the Father sent me, so send I you. So you too are sent out, maybe not to the places that Paul and Barnabas were sent, but maybe you're sent to the neighborhood you live in, to the people you come in contact with, to the neighbor across the street, to the coworker across the hall, whatever it is, you two are called. So, so don't get lost in the history of this that we, we abstain ourselves from any responsibility. No, we too are called. That is what you are called to do. One uh, missionary who lived at the turn of the 19th century said this, the spirit of Christ is the spirit of missions. And the nearer we get to him, the more intensely missionary we become. May this be true of us. Look at verses 4 and 5. Luke details where they went. So they went down to Seleucus, and from there they went to Cyprus, and then they arrived at Salmas, and they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So here he gives a, a breakdown of where they went. Here's a little map you can see up in the, the right-hand corner, the starting point there, and down to the, the city of the port city, and then over to the island of Cyprus. And that's where uh, they first did ministry. This was the, the, the home place of, of Barnabas. This is where he was from. And whereas when it says that John came with them, he was assistant, we, we don't know exactly what his assistance involved. He wasn't called like they were called. He wasn't set aside. He wasn't sent by the church. But so he came along anyways. Uh, whereas we might not know the, what his purpose was, we do know what their purpose was. And their purpose was to proclaim the word of God. That's what they would do. We find out how they did that by going to the synagogues of the Jews. And this would be a reoccurring thing for Paul. When Paul came to a city, he would go to the, the synagogue. He would go to the place where, uh, where, where the Jews were. And there were two primary reasons for that. And the first one would be pragmatic because they actually knew the Bible. <laughs> they actually believed the Bible. They just didn't see the connection with Jesus. And so he was going to go to people who already had some basis of understanding and then point to Christ, show them the Messiah. The other, it would be more theological or more, more convictional because John, uh, later, uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter one, and he says this, that the gospel was to the Jew first, then to the Greek. So there's a sense of we're going to the city, we're going to talk to the Jew first, and then we'll talk to the Greek. And that's exactly what they did. And as they went, they found that there's going to be people who were open and there were going to be people who were opposed. That sounds about right, doesn't it? 
That sounds about like your life too, doesn't it? People who are open and people who are opposed. Well, let's look at it in verse six. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And he was with a, the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Eliabus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So, so here, here we see uh, Luke identifying two people, a magician named Bargesus and a proconsul named Sergius Paulus. First, Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus uh, was a Roman governor who we would understand this position was a, a pretty high-ranking position, so he was a powerful guy. Uh, Luke calls him a man of, tele- of intelligence who, who wanted to hear the word of God. He actually called these guys to come. Can you imagine? You're two, two missionaries. You arrive into this, this city, and this very high-ranking official calls you because he, he, he actually wants to hear the gospel. He, he's not actually calling you to get you in trouble. He's calling because he, he's open to it. And so, like you and I would, they come. Right? And they, they, they share with him. Uh, this might seem fine to you, but later in 1 Corinthians, Paul would say, you know what? It's not easy for a powerful man to come to Christ. He, he writes this, For consider your calling, brothers, that not many of you are wise according to the world standards, and not many are powerful, not many of noble birth. Meaning the powerful, the, the rich, the, the, those people, they don't always come to Christ because they don't see their need for Christ. So this, this interaction was actually rare. But we can know this, that as much as Sergius Paulus was searching, uh, there are many searching today. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, about the, the nature of, of people asking questions even today. Even in our secular world, there are people who are asking questions about what, what's in the Bible, uh, of who Jesus is, of what is the gospel. We can live each day expecting and ready to share. You, you never know. Listen, when, when they arrived in Paphos, do you think they were going to get to think they thought they were going to get to speak to a Roman official? They, they didn't know that. God had that set apart. You don't know who you could be called to to talk to tomorrow. Are, are you ready? Are you ready to share the good news? Are you ready to, to talk to somebody about the word of God? Well, as much as there's openness, there's also opposition. And we find the second man here is called Bar Jesus, or a son of salvation. This man uh, was a magician or a, a sorcerer. Um, you, you might remember that, that Paul, or excuse me, Peter already had a run-in with, with a, uh, a magician back in chapter 8. Now here Saul's going to get his crack at it. And now when you read magician, let's just say this quickly. When you read magician, um, you, you need to understand that this is not the guy who dresses up in a cape and a top hat and does magic tricks at your little nephew's birthday party. Right? That's not what we're talking about here. Okay, So when you hear magician, uh, rather you should think of a superstitious occult leader uh, and a false prophet who's in, in, in touch with, with dark power. Okay? That's the kind of guy we're talking about. This is, this is no small thing. And he wasn't keeping his beliefs to himself. He was trying to turn people away, namely Sergius Paulus. He saw these missionaries, he saw the message as a threat to him, to his way of life. To, to what he was doing, his livelihood. It's not surprising then that he would oppose the word of God because the word of God disrupts. 
the word of God comes in and it disrupts our belief systems. It, it disrupts what, what, what we want, our, our idols. And here we see Bar-Jesus is certainly disrupted, but he would not bow. He would not bow. In fact, he would reject, he would oppose, and he was an enemy of the gospel. You need to know, and I need to know this, that opposition to the gospel is inevitable. It's inevitable. The gospel is opposition to our way of life, to our, our personal, um, uh, uh, the, the way we, our independence, our, our individualism, uh, our self-determination, all those things that, that modern people think they, they are, the gospel cuts at the root of all of those things. So opposition is inevitable. In, in America, we're seeing it, right? You're seeing it. It's coming. We've said this before, but in, in our country, the, the chances of, of us experiencing persecution or opposition are greater now than maybe it's ever been. It's coming, and we need to be ready. We need to ready ourselves for that because with opposition, listen, comes opportunities for compromise. It's going to come. The, the moment's going to come when, when you are faced with someone opposing the gospel. What are you going to do? What are you going to do about that? Will, will you stand? Will you speak the truth? Will you say what God says? This opposition doesn't indicate that you're in the wrong place. It actually indicates that you're in the right place. It's inevitable. That's what happens with the gospel. We won't reach, one writer says this, we won't reach the nations apart from personal sacrifice. Sacrifice, going into opposition, is the cost of discipleship. So suffering for the Christian is actually not very surprising. And Saul's not messing around. Saul's not going to just, just let this go. One scholar commented on Paul's missionary journey. He wrote that we would much prefer the story to be one of gentle persuasion than of confrontation. <laughs> if you're somebody who doesn't like conversation, you're, you're, you're saying amen to that, right? You'd like it just to be, well, maybe you should believe, or it would be good if you would believe too. No, no, there's confrontation, and this is what happens. Look at it in verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, stop there just for a moment, uh, most of the time when we think of Saul and Paul, that, that change of names, we connect it to his conversion. That's not what Luke does, by the way. Because after his conversion, when Ananias comes to him, he says, Brother Saul. He uses his name. So the, the change of name is not connected with his conversion. We, we sometimes get that a little, a little off. It, it makes sense and might, might seem like a, a good transition, but it's actually not the transition. Luke uses the translation or the transition here uh, for, for a number of reasons. But, but let me just give you one. That it wasn't uncommon for someone to have both a Hebrew name uh, and a Roman name. What's an example of that? Well, in chapter one, we meet uh, when, when they're uh, appointing the, the new guy to replace, replace a Judas, we have a guy named Barsabbas, who is also called Joseph, two names. Or just earlier, Mark, whose also name is John. This was not uncommon for there to be two names. So Saul is actually just using his, his Hebrew name here. And since he was going to be ministering to, to Gentiles, this was completely appropriate that he would use that name. Uh, he was serious about reaching them, so he didn't want his name to get in the way of, in any nature. And so he uses his, his Hebrew name, um, or his Roman name, excuse me. And so here, here, we, uh, here we come into chapter 9. So Saul, who's called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, which tells us uh, how he got his power, uh, looked intently at him, that's Bar-Jesus, and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, 
full of deceit, also deceit and villainy. You will not stop making crooked, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see uh, the sun for a time. Uh, one commentator suggests that, that here, uh, the soul of Sergius Paulus is in the balance. And, and Saul's not gonna just walk away from this. He's, he's not gonna leave this hindrance to the gospel unchallenged. And so he, he does challenge him. He, he calls him out for what he is. Um, he calls out the false teaching. False teaching must be called out. Brother and sister, false teaching must be called out. It is not, <clears throat> listen, it is not hateful <clears throat> to call out false teaching. And it's not loving to be quiet about false teaching. Jesus actually warned that, that if anyone leads a, a young child into sin, it'd be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and drowned. It's a serious thing to, to lead someone astray. And so false teaching must be called out. You, you, you ought to be very careful about the teaching you listen to. You ought to be very discerning about the things you read and pay attention to. And we here need to do a good job of, of vetting and helping to direct and discern the truth of others' teaching and our own. But note the contrast here between Paul and Bar-Jesus. Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 4, and then here in verse 10, Bar-Jesus is filled with deceit and villainy. Uh, Paul was sent by the Spirit in verse 4, and here Bar-Jesus is the son of the devil. Paul preached the, the gospel of, of the righteous one of Jesus, and here Bar-Jesus is an enemy of all that is right. Paul was announcing salvation. He was, he was proclaiming the good news, right? And here, Paul, uh, Bar-Jesus is per perverting the way by making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. It, that's the contrast between what these two men were up to. There's a, there's a parable, just quickly, there's a parable in, in the Gospels uh, of this. It's called the, the parable of the tares uh, or the weeds. And the enemy comes in and he, and he sows weeds among the tares, uh, in order to disrupt the crop. And the question is, do we go and, and tear out all, the, all those first? And Jesus says, no, at, at the harvest, we'll, we'll separate that, and the weeds will be collected, and they'll be burned. Judgment will come. God is not mocked. God, God will uh, ultimately have victory. God will judge all things. No one can stop this gospel, not even this magician. Verses 11 and 13 detail the outcomes. Look at it. Immediately the midst, uh, mist and darkness fell upon him. That's, again, Bar-Jesus. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Remember Paul being led by the hand on the road to Damascus? And now here, here's another man blinded for his, his opposition to Christ. And yet a very different response. We don't see here the story of, of conversion for Bar-Jesus we don't see that. That's not accounted for like it was for Paul. Bar-Jesus is, is struck with blindness, and perhaps this represented well his spiritual blindness. It seems appropriate for someone who was a proponent of darkness to be blinded. And it certainly serves as a foretaste uh, of judgment that is to come. In the Gospels, there, there's this language of judgment called utter darkness. And here, for a time, Bar-Jesus experienced that. In contrast to that, verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw, that he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Sergius Paulus saw what happened, and his response was to believe. 
His response was to see what God had done, to hear the gospel, and to believe. Though he had no religious background, we understand, though he experienced real opposition to even hearing the gospel, he heard the word, he saw the miracle, and he believed. John Stott summarizes this section by saying this, the Holy Spirit overthrew the evil one, the apostle confounded the sorcerer, and the gospel triumphed over the occult. Amen and amen, right? And that's still going on today. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for anyone and all who will believe it. For a, a Roman official or for a magician or for a, a, a Pharisee, whoever you are, the gospel has the power to save. God did the work through his word and in response, this man believed. What did he believe? He believed the gospel. He believed that through repentance and faith in the work of Christ, which we see before us at this table. His body that was pierced for our transgression. His blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. That's what he believed. These symbols that represent to us, that, that give us this picture of the work of Christ, that's what he believed. And if you believe that, if you've come to Christ as, as uh, for asking for salvation from him, if you've believed on him as your Lord and Savior, then we invite you in just a moment to take part in this supper with us. But if you haven't, if you haven't yet come to Christ, then we invite you to let the, let the plates pass today. And instead, instead of receiving these elements that only symbolize Christ, receive Christ himself. Receive the forgiveness that he offers by repenting of your sins and believing in that gospel. Would you do that this morning? Father, we believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so even right now, God, as you save Sergius Paulus, God, I pray for those in the room who might not know you, that they might come to see you. For those that do, God, I pray that we would be reminded of the beauty and the power of the gospel today. That you would give us courage as we go to speak boldly as we saw Paul speak, filled with the Spirit. God, we ask your blessing now as we observe this table, as we take this bread, which symbolizes your body, which was pierced for us. We remember your death now, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.